But check it. Seven caps. Tupac ain't getting near that. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're going to explore all parts of the thigh, all parts of the soprano's body, actually, but with particular focus on the fleshy part of the thigh. That, as we learn, is apparently the best place to get shot and accrue street cred at the same time. This episode originally aired on April 2nd, 2006, was written by Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, a husband and wife writing team like Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess. This episode is the first of four credits on the show for them. The duo won Emmys for their work on Northern Exposure. That's their connective thread, of course, to David Chase. Admittedly, I never watched Northern Exposure, but everything about it, from the premise to the locations to the title, checks a lot of boxes for me. There's even a Nietzsche-quoting DJ. It's also considered a root cause, to quote Dr. Melfi, of the Native American mysticism this show delved into over the past few episodes. So for those reasons, I'd love to go back and check it out sometime. This episode was directed by Alan Taylor, of course, also the director of the upcoming Many Saints feature. HBO synopsis. Tony's finally on the mend, but doesn't quite feel himself. Later, he and Johnny Sack haggle over Barone Sanitation's future and Tony's part in it. Meanwhile, Polly is rocked by his aunt's shocking revelation, and Bacala cuts a deal with an aspiring rapper. We open on an image of a sea monster of some kind in full scuba gear. There's a scuba lessons decal on the window behind it, Creature's eyes are glazed over like it's got cataracts. And out comes Polly, like Gregory Peck in Moby Dick or something, with the vig and vim of somebody who just made a collection. Peck, of course, played opposite Polly Bergen in the original Cape Fear, a Pata Bing favorite. And Bergen, as we know, played the great Fran Felstein on the show. This episode is bookended by Polly's signature stride, as we'll see. Compare this particular gait to the end as he walks away from Jason Barone after taking him out at the knees. But here, we see him holding a bag with the universal symbol for diving on it, the red with the white stripe. It's actually a flag known as the Diver Down Flag, or simply Scuba Flag. It's used to indicate to anyone above water that a diver's down below. This flag was also used by the band Van Halen in the cover art for their album called Diver Down. One of the tracks on the album was a song written by Dale Evans called Happy Trails. Shirley Jr. would no doubt be thinking of a different kind of happy if he heard that song and knew who wrote it. Worth mentioning, the stripe pattern on Polly's jumper today is rivaling the stripes on the sides of his head. The dive shop is next to a place called Mulberry Bush Antiques and a pizzeria called Esposito's. 
all located on Pompton Avenue. Recall, that's the same road Karen, Bobby's wife, died on. Also a former trivia question. Anyway, the opening sequence of a diving shop suggests this episode is going to get deep. Like, Mariana Trench deep. And to follow suit, so shall we. Pauly chirps his Cadillac and we cut to Tony sweating with his thumb locked on the morphine drip. For those of us that have seen it enough times, you can't help but recall Christopher in From Where to Eternity smashing that drip when Carmela tries to tell him Christ saved him. But back to the cut for a sec. The no-context cut from Pauly to Tony signified to me that A, this show, man, and its palette for complexity, and B, the link between these two frames is that Pauly is the one who jump-started Tony coming back, for better or worse, and certainly, however, unintentional on his part. A nurse is cleaning and dressing his wound. Still is sight to behold. She lets him know he's having surgery tomorrow to finally get closed up. The docs don't need access anymore. And as we'll see, Tony's wound closure also, no doubt, sunsetted their side hustles as comedians. Real quick, couple things to connect the dots on from last episode. The Ojibwe saying appears to have been moved as has the pinboard it's affixed to. Also, and something I didn't mention last time, there are a series of playing cards fanned out on the pinboard as well. Executive game vibes, symbol of the deck being stacked against you, a reminder to play with the hands you're dealt. Maybe all of it, maybe none of it. Tony catches the Ojibwe saying out of the corner of his eye after he's reprimanded for using too much morphine. Tells the nurse his sister put it up. Gotta say, though, I think this message is even over Parvati's head. It always felt more Gloria Trillo, if anything. But we know that obviously isn't possible. Right now, he's confident it was Janice. But the block letters create this ambiguity the likes of which we have never seen. Actually, we have seen them post-Sopranos. It's like those block letters in the Jinx, that series on Robert Durst, but without the massive payoff here. Unlike that documentary, where it was concluded that one and only one person could have written it, we get no such satisfaction here. At least not yet. Tony's irritated by it, but says he kept it up because Meadow likes it. The nurse echoes how lucky he is to be alive. 20 to 1 odds. That means out of 21 possible outcomes, odds were that there would be 20 of one kind of outcome and one of another. Safe to assume they thought 20 out of 21 outcomes said he would die. I found it interesting that Tony and his life were, like Piomai, reduced to a racetrack bet ratio. He mentions his uncle and how he put him through this as a new patient is wheeled past. A rapper called Deluxe got shot seven times exiting a club. Reminded me immediately of Tupac and Biggie, two friends who turned into deadly rivals. 
The gunshots upon exiting a club part is what connected the two for me. Tupac was shot in a car on the way to a club after a Tyson fight. Biggie was shot a few months later in L.A. under similar circumstances, sans a Tyson fight. In looking back on their two short, see what I did there, but legendary careers and permanent imprints on the culture, Biggie at one point asked Tupac to manage him. Tupac apparently declined, citing that Puff would make Biggie a big star. Tupac at one point called Biggie his lieutenant. Among one of the crazier anecdotes from a book I read a while back called Original Gangstas by Ben Westhoff, Tupac allegedly shot himself through the scrotum to further his rift between Biggie and Puff. This reminded me, of course, of Deluxe's aspiring rapper this episode. That's why I bring it up. Yet another example that real life is stranger than fiction. Deluxe, by the way, is Latin for light. Certainly a light during Tony's hospital stay, as we'll see. But also, perhaps a light toward a certain kind of recognition for Tony. A toggling of Tony. That's a word I'm going to keep coming back to this episode. Getting shot, the nurse explains, her name is Fiona, by the way, is where their similarities end. He's got more pancreas than Tony, to which I always thought if Tony had the energy, he would retort, oh, rim shot. Tony tells Fiona he's not feeling himself. Seems scared, worried. Says his thoughts keep running away. Actually, sounds kind of like the Tony we know. All the permutations. The difference being that this one is laid out flat indefinitely. Classic tale of idle hands. Made me wonder if this were in current times, would he indulge podcasts to pass the time? You know, ones recommended by Meadow or Dr. Melfi, maybe. Fiona tells him it's normal, but offers a social worker, to which he looks down and away, a signifier of most people's reaction to getting offered a social worker. No disrespect to social workers. I do think the single best thing a person can do for those in need or who are going through a rough situation is to give empathy. But giving empathy is not one size fits all. Very few people are actually good at it. And if you're of this world in North Jersey, those that are good at it are few and far between. As Fiona exits, Carmela enters. She brought him a dinosaur encyclopedia, vis-a-vis a candy striper with a bad selection. Candy stripers is a term derived from the red and white striped aprons hospital volunteers used to wear back in the day. The other option, Carmela says, was something on Sink the Bismarck, but half the pages were missing. That's a reference to the 1960 film of the same name. The Bismarck was Nazi Germany's largest battleship, of course named after Otto von Bismarck. Germany's first chancellor, and if you play Civilization, like I do with my son, one of the best leaders to start and run a winning campaign with. Not to be confused with rapper Bismarcky of Just a Friend fame. You know the song. 
Take a second and sing it with me. But you say he's just a friend. And you say he's just a friend. Throw your hands in the air. And wave them like you just don't care. But continuing with our European theater portion of the program, the wreckage of the sunken ship was found in 1989 by the same guy who found the Titanic. Its final resting place, some 16,000 feet below sea level. A little too deep for whatever diving gear Polly might have picked up. Next, love the little detail of seeing Tony's feet come out from under the sheets. The little things. He tells her they're closing him up tomorrow. Little details here. Note, he seems content. His mood just shifted not two seconds after Fiona left. He's so used to putting up facades around Carmela. Recall our discussion of appearances, facades, and myths in cold cuts. And note her response is simply a sigh, which takes me right back to her conversation with Dr. Melfi. Is she really glad Tony's back? He opens the book to a page on pterodactyls or some other version of a flying dinosaur. Or if you're Tony, maybe he sees the dinosaur version of ducks. Which, speaking of, we cut to seagulls squawking over an urban landscape. A great cut to convey interconnectedness in all things. We see those bridges that have been talismans throughout the entire series. The New Jersey Transit passing by below it. Followed by a Barone sanitation truck pulling up in the foreground. With a black dog just off to the side. Looks to be a different one than what we've seen before. The other dog must have been on contract someplace else. Too early to get cute. Keep going. The depth of field of this frame is gorgeous. The sense of place. A masterclass in the importance of an establishing shot. Three different stories happening in one place. Efficient. Memorable. Moody. Creating a beautiful frame with a waste management company as your subject. Think about that. Also, another reminder, right? That life goes on, whether Tony's in a coma or not. Here we meet Jason Barone and a guy named Gus. Jason is played by actor Chris Diamantopoulos. Hope I got that right. The longtime voice of Mickey Mouse. Dick Barone, Jason's dad, was the best boss, we learn. We also learn he's dead. And everything in threes, right? Soprano's triptych. We learn that Jason is selling the business. This as the frame shifts to enclose their conversation inside a box with a mountain of shit behind them. And looks to be from the vantage point of a picture of Polly looking out at them as we'll see in a sec. Jason says he noticed a guy named Anthony Soprano on the payroll, second highest salary in the company. Gus rubs his nose a couple, three times. Guy's calling plays for the New York Mets over here. Winces and says, Tony's a consultant. Geez, Gus, ever hear of masking your tells? 
little discretion maybe? Didn't you read the Waste Management Consultant HR manual? Jason wants to meet him, make some changes, starting with his office, which is full of junk, which, gotta say, is a little surprising given that we've only seen him there once, right? One of the items of note was a 55 Johnson outboard. That's a boat motor. Johnson Outboards was a U.S. company that manufactured outboard motors. Like so many, the brand has been discontinued. Gus tells Jason Tony's in the hospital, but to talk to his colleague, Paul Galtieri, the 2006 honoree for excellence in recycling, as a picture on the wall conveys. Even though the plaque is made out to a Mitchell Cotter for some kind of editorial award. Shows you how much they respect auditing authorities and any other bureaucracy that might scrutinize the legitimacy of their business enterprises. Jason immediately recognizes him, puts two and two together, and realizes Anthony meant Tony, an old friend of the family. No problem, he's thinking. He'll clear this up in no time. First impression of this guy is lack of awareness and instantly in the crosshairs of this thing of ours on account that he plans to meddle. Cut to a hospital aide delivering a spread of food to Tony. Evidently didn't get the memo that he's having surgery tomorrow and isn't supposed to eat. Tony let her know, though. Upon which, I wonder why she didn't take the tray away. I mentioned that because of the billing consultant person that's about to rear her head in a little bit. Every cent counts. Anyway, Bobby and Janice are visiting. He's rifling through a magazine, and she's bedside. Couldn't tell if he was reading a hobbyist pub for railroading, but safe to say he's not doing himself any favors with tea at the moment. Always something, Tony says. One of his more concise truisms. Janice was in the middle of a story about how she can't sleep at night because of the baby. Always something with her, too, right? How about you ride in a fucking Zephyrs and sleep on a cloud? What? You think I put that up there? I didn't. Right. Who then? This as Bobby sips his coffee. Such a perfect delight of a fucking detail right there. I can't get over that. No lines. Just the three-dimensionality of complexity happening within a hospital room. Zephyr, by the way, is a soft, gentle breeze. Always reminds me of Red Hot Chili Peppers' Zephyr song off their By The Way album. The Sopranos was a favorite of bassist Flea. His memoir, by the way, no, his memoir wasn't also called By The Way. His memoir was called Acid For The Children, and it's pretty good. I listened to the audiobook version. I'm a big fan of hearing people like that in their own voice when possible. His relationship with Anthony Kiedis is just fascinating to me. The duality of it, to bring it back to The Sopranos in this episode in particular. Okay, Janice immediately shoots down any notion that she put the Ojibwe saying up there. And for once, I'm inclined to believe what she's saying. Something like that, I feel like she'd want credit for it. Tony asks, for him and for us, if not her, then who? As, of course, her telephone rings. Note, Bobby's eyes are locked 
on the sandwich now. On the other end of the line, it's indistinct nanny. Jan's got a bail to check in on her. Bobby doesn't get up, stays locked on the food. What started subtle now isn't. It's an all-out love fest. This as Tony pushes the cart towards him. He doesn't skip a beat, grabs hold of that sandwich, and the real Tony, to channel Eminem, is starting to stand up. Suppose you got a little choo-choo train at home, huh? Takes your toast right from the kitchen, delivers it to your bedroom. Come on, Tone. Look, Tone. Why you gotta belittle it? But Bobby gets it. Tony shouldn't have been there at Junior's that night. He apologizes, but uses the word but, which undoes the whole thing. Tony cuts him off, says, you can't hide behind this brother-in-law shit forever. You're an okay guy, but each and every man is judged on his own merit. Cut to Bobby's face, grimacing at what that might mean. Kind of get the feeling he likes being a piss boy. Might not want to put in the work. By merit, we of course imagine that it has something to do with thick envelopes. Paulie and Vito delivered a decent package to Tony just the other day. Where was Bobby's? Then an interesting sequence occurs. Blast from the past. Bobby slowly gets up and leaves. Tony hacks away at his morphine drip. And Aaron Arkaway walks in the room. Have you heard the good news? Jesus Christ! That's right. Of course, played by friend of the pod, Turk Pipkin. Are we dreaming again? Tony's response of, Jesus Christ, was perfect. Aaron's got a Paul Dano in There Will Be Blood type character looming in the background. Speaking of, what a transformation from Patrick Whalen. Probably one of the biggest shifts or pivots among actors from this show, however large or small the role. One other bit of Sopranos connectivity, Dano's voice, along with Gandolfini's, were featured in Where the Wild Things Are. Aaron's wearing a shirt that mentions Terry Schiavo, who, recall, was a woman on artificial life support for several years and was part of a landmark right-to-die case during the 1990s and ultimately ending on the same date as that on Aaron's shirt, the day she died, March 31st, 2005. So what the fuck's he doing there with that zinc on his nose? Well, what else? protesting. He has a sign that reads, Womb is God's. Haven't seen that one yet on the guy with the sign Insta. Somebody got fired for refusing to fill birth control prescriptions, and Aaron is fighting for that guy to get his job back. Gives you, among other things, some insight as to why Janice broke things off with him. To many, evangelicals take things too far, even for Janice also hinting at a future Bobby line. That Paul Dano guy is called Bob Brewster. He's a prayer leader of lambs to the slaughter, I wondered. But who am I, Roald Dahl now? He offers to pray with Tony. Notice how his eyes are kind of tweaked. Tony says, bottom feeding, praying on the ill and infirm, to line his pockets in the name of the Lord. Bob's response, pulling no punches and hiding behind no veils. It's where the big fish are. 
Tony hits the morphine again, but it's not dispensing. They're trying to wean him off. And proximity to God, or his purported messengers in this case, isn't helping. Just as it wasn't for Christopher back when he got shot. Speaking of God's messengers, Jan and Aaron were releasing music together. Remember that? Wonder if he's still getting those royalty checks, or whether Jan found a way to circumvent the performance rights organizations. Or maybe they just made it as far as SoundCloud and called it a career. As Bob comes closer into focus, ostensibly to offer comfort, note the lighting on his face changes. Illuminates, almost. Like a halo or something. Also note the Bible he's touting. Doesn't look like the King James Version. He says he was addicted to cocaine and strippers once upon a time. I knew something was off about him. It's in those eyes, man. Not because of those eyes, although they probably didn't help much. He lost his wife, his car, says he was hanging upside down, attached to nothing more than a seatbelt. Back pocket that visual. In that very moment, and just that moment alone, he prayed to God and was instantly saved. Could somebody please get Richard Dawkins on the phone? Great touch of Aaron saying praise him in the background. Being a hype man of sorts of this man of God for this MC of holy. Puffy to his biggie to keep one of the themes of this episode going. Bob says he sees that same suffering in Tony and tells him the way to end it is to accept Jesus Christ as his personal savior. JC. Tony, immediately sniffing the con, says he's already covered, meaning his local parish priest already collects on his behalf. Bob expresses that Tony's parish is a middleman of sorts. Liturgy, he says, gets in the way of direct connection with God. This guy is offering Tony a way to slide into God's DMs over here. But all liturgy is is public religious worship. So what's this polysyllabic cocksucker talking about? Isn't his church the same thing? Isn't he himself, in doing what he's doing, a form of a middleman? Did we not learn from Father Alameda and Stigmata that Jesus Christ had his own gospel, his own words, instructions to his disciples, that the church is so much more than a building? That you don't need an institution between you and God? The first line in said gospel was, after all, the kingdom of God is inside you and all around you? But what is this? Gospel according to Hollywood motion pictures now? Carmela comes in to break up the pitch. And Bob offers up another group prayer. His own form of liturgy, mind you. This time, backing up his product with data and statistics. Prayed for patients have 11% fewer complications. Not exactly a high watermark, but anytime you say the word percent, things start to sound more weighty and impactful, even if the number 11 precedes it. So, Tony relents, 
They pray. He closes his eyes. Aaron puts his fist over his heart. Unorthodox, but what are you going to do? This is a church that operates by its own set of rules, as do they all, by the way, which, of course, is another inherent head-scratcher for the business of organized religion. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, Bob says. That's a rework of Romans 5.20, which reads, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. After amens, Tony asks about the pharmacist who wouldn't prescribe birth control, but not for the same reason as the sign that read, Womb is God's. Rather, it's because of Viagra. Tony says he's going to need it now more than ever. Awkward timing. But imagine just getting shot, going through your own personal bardo, and living to tell about it. Top three things on a person's mind? Sure. Bob assures him that God loves procreation. So Viagra shouldn't be a problem with his pharmacists, rogue or otherwise. Viagra, we learn, is perfectly fine. But birth control, described as the morning after pill, is a sin. Because it strikes at life. At the unborn, as Bob explains. Which is a scientific versus religion duality bridge there is no point crossing. Because while I do believe in science first, I do respect people's right to believe what they want as codified by the First Amendment. It's kind of like music to me. Two otherwise completely reasonable, well-adjusted people could completely disagree on whether or not house music sounds better on vinyl versus digital. The music can be objectively better. But a person could apply pure subjectivity to disagree. But Tony isn't talking about procreation. Or even house music, actually. He's just talking about cold, hard sex. Great moment, pointing to Carm. Listen up, because this affects you too. To which I thought, Durkheim's The Sacred and the Profane. In every sentiment throughout this series. I bring that doctrine up in part because it will get masterfully malapropped a little later in the show. To put this to bed, pun intended, all Bob can offer up is that Viagra isn't on God's list of things to give a shit about. The fuck would he know? This guy an apostle now? Tony explains that at one point the government went after alcohol. He's up to date on this stuff on account that he runs a drinking and eating establishment. His version of a portmanteau of sorts for the Bing. But even Bob calls a spade a spade, referencing the Bing directly. Though he says he's never been there, even though he flat out mentions strippers as a vice, as a cause celebre. Not even two minutes with this guy, and he's cloaked in hypocrisy. Fully ingratiated, no doubt, into the Sopranos' ethos. When they leave, Carmela calls Tony a wise-ass. On what grounds, I wondered. Cut to sewing up surgery. Overhead view. One last look. One last reminder of what was the first quadrant of this season. Then we get a shot of Tony on the respirator. 
just long enough to make you believe or wonder or dread, depending on what camp you fall in, that Tony might make another trip to Costa Mesa. Oh my God. What is it, doctor? I just found Jimmy Hoffa. (laughs) Bad joke, but also a reminder that he's never been accounted for. Although The Irishman and the book it was adapted from definitely has a point of view on that. But this Plepler guy? Painting houses over here with those jokes. Although in fairness, not nearly as bad as most of mine. Cut to Meadow reading about T-Rex fossils in Montana to a recovering Tony. Something about soft tissue being a nexus between dinosaurs and modern birds. Another nexus, of course, is that we've heard the expression soft tissue before. Remember Isabella? Got me wondering, will we hear that expression a third time? And will it offer a clue as to Tony's final disposition? Note, Tony is spellbound at the mention of birds. Like Laker fans who recently discovered that playoff Rondo still exists. Paulie brings in Jason Barone. The sanitation prints. Tony reintroduces Jason to Meadow. They share a moment. Just long enough for me to wonder, future sanitation princess? Tony brings up a field box at Shea, opening day. Jason remembers. Kingman was just back from the Cubs. Probably referring to Dave Kingman, a three-time Major League Baseball All-Star and a two-time National League home run leader. Pauly mentions Mookie Wilson and a foul tip that beamed a guy in a loge. Wilson, of course, was an outfielder for the Mets, crowd favorite, and World Series champion in 1986. Shea Stadium, by the way, since we're on the subject and all, was the home stadium for the Mets from 1964 to 2008, named after William A. Shea, an attorney. It also hosted the New York Football Jets from 1964 to 1983. Shea was one of the men responsible for bringing National League Baseball back to New York. The Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants had left for the West Coast, in part because their owners got full control of their new stadiums. Something that wasn't popular in New York, thanks to a legendary figure called Robert Moses. So legendary, in fact, that there's a 1,300-page book written about just him, called The Power Broker. Shea was torn down in 2009, and became a parking lot for the new adjacent city field. Like Joni Mitchell said, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And with all that, Meadow senses an out and takes it. But not before Tony clutches her and thanks her. Simple, but an affirmation at what we've known from early seasons. Their bond is different. Down to business with Jason. He's living in Deer Valley now, but not because of witness protection. He's a ski instructor there. Also made me think of Chris and how he might like to know this information, since he'd probably want to submit his slasher film to Sundance. Jason might be able to hook them up, willingly or not. Tony says he knows he's thinking of selling Barone Sanitation to Chucky Cinelli, a Lupertazzi associate and owner of Cinelli Sanitation. First thought? Uh-oh. Sopranos version of a bridge and tunnel series about to go down. 
Jason thinks selling is the best thing for mom, sons, and their mothers, especially this episode. Loved Autopsy's rework of fortunate sons to unfortunate sons in his write-up, as there are a lot of those this episode. Jason being the first one in his series. Tony, Polly, the little boy in the Barone sanitation truck. AJ. He offers up a severance package for Tony. Note Polly's sigh and grimace. What about his fucking severance package? Also, as we'll learn, Jason's allegedly been kept in the dark all these years. Yet, his ski instructor calculus has him carving out a piece for Tony out of the gate? Dubious. Tony doesn't think he should sell yet. Says he'll run some numbers when he gets out of the hospital. Paulie asks if Jason even knows what his EBITDA is. My what? I feel like there are people in the business of valuing companies that don't even fully realize what that is. But the way he pronounces amortization, emphasis on the syllable mort, meaning you sell this business, you're as good as mort or dead. For Pada Bing's Business 101 section of the podcast, actually going to be a couple of those, I think, this episode. EBITDA is a valuation metric. It measures profitability in a way that allows businesses to be compared to one another in an apples-to-apples way. Importantly, avoiding the apples and bowling balls conundrum Phil Leotardo was concerned about earlier. Tony's ominous final words? Let me handle this. I don't want to see you get hurt. To which I thought, maybe he was kept in the dark. Because anybody who knows a guy like Tony heeds those words. And then, love this. Says, that kind of business, the carding business, it's a different corporate culture. Red, kickbacks and bribes galore. And he's right. Private carding has been part of the fabric of the tri-state area since the early 1900s. Private businesses picked up trash in the commercial zones, and municipal sanitation workers handled mostly residential zones in their neighborhoods. But cities calculated that handling business trash was too expensive, so they privatized it. That legislative event resulted in the mafia carving up cities among the families. Each route was owned and accounted for. And nobody was allowed to undercut or steal business. And the actual bidding process was rigged. If a route owner was shopped, the network of other options would essentially quote a much higher price, making the customer think he or she was getting a deal. To curb this practice, current New York Mayor Bill de Blasio has tried to create a system whereby the city is divided into zones and companies openly bid at which point the city would pick a winner. All of this in the name of curbing greenhouse gas emissions. But industry opposition remains strong, as demonstrated by upward-trending lobbyist spend. And the harsh truth is, state and local governments just don't put up the resources and manpower to curb these entrenched practices. Wrapping up this scene, Polly pulls Jason out so Tony can rest, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call putting pressure without lifting a finger or an entire body, literally. Cut to a beautiful building with nuns, channeling their inner Voltaires, who of course wrote about tending one's own garden. 
Here we have nuns sweeping and trimming weeds of the grounds they occupy on behalf of the Catholic Church. Polly walks up. He's got that diving bag in his hand. Upon entering, we learn that someone there doesn't have long to live. Polly wonders why Ma didn't come. The nun escort explains he was specifically requested. Inside, a woman is laying down, calves exposed. Part of her thigh, too, actually. This part is so good, so hilarious. Polly sees the legs. Polly's, Polly sees them and the accompanying veins and offers up a... Oh, my God. It's Aunt Dottie. Her pillow's soaked. She's trembling. He tries to cover her up, but she kicks free. He cringes. So perfect. This is one of my favorite episodes of Polly to date. Just the little things. The dialogue mixed with acting, the body language, the menace mixed with the sentimentality. Full fucking range, this guy. Award-worthy performance all around, I say. Polly brought pignolis, those pine nut cookies, and we finally learn what's in the bag from the dive shop. A new pair of Speedo Skin Diver socks. The visual of Aunt Dottie's legs now makes sense. We get to imagine her in a Speedo. Polly mentions the word treads again. Recall last time was in unidentified black males back when he told Finn to clean his car. She keeps trying to tell him something, but he keeps stalling. The tension buildup here is choreographed so well. Asks another sister to help put socks on his aunt. He doesn't want anything to do with those legs, lest he touch a fucking varicose vein. She finally settles him down to listen. She begins by saying she was a bad girl, which by itself, coming from a nun, is twisted. Gotta take a shower after that one. Everything about this episode so far points toward a referendum on the ridiculousness of the dogma component of organized religion. And at this point, being firmly cemented as the greatest piece of art ever to come to television, I say, let her rip. She explains that during the war, she was still a novitiate. That's a nun trainee. Anyways, she was helping out at the USO. United Service Organization, an entity that provides entertainment to members of the armed forces. And there, she met a soldier, a guy named Russ. And judging by the way she said his name, one might surmise he had her with just that alone. Polly cuts her off and says maybe she should talk to a priest. Great line. Another notch in his belt for this episode, especially. But she leans closer. I got pregnant. Had a baby. Always thought he was smart enough to draw his own conclusions at this point. But Polly calls it Alzheimer's. This could have been his last-ditch attempt at denial, maybe. She insists she did. And that it was him. His face. His response. But Ma. But Ma. The way he says Ma, the tone, puts the rest of us to shame. Marianuccia, we learn, is his aunt, not his Ma. The power and gravity and weight of that moment 
for any human being to learn that way, to have to process that way in front of a bystander, all the emotion, the intensity, seeing your life flash before your eyes. How does The Sopranos convey that? How does it bottle all that up into one succinct line of dialogue? I was a bad girl. Cut to Tony resting. A woman enters, one Tony's immediately drawn to. Who needs Viagra, he's thinking. He thinks she's a doctor because she snuck a white coat. Always thought there was an unwritten law that only doctors were supposed to don those. That was their royal crown among the hospital plebeians that served them. Anyway, Tony wonders where they've been hiding her. Other doctors, he said, are like the united colors of Benetton. Besides being an artful way to display tempered racism, the reference is, of course, to the Italian Benetton Group, a massive global brand in the 80s and 90s, it has since fallen out of favor. Makes me think of Heidi Klum, who said, with fashion, one day you're in, and the next, you're out. The United Colors part of their story refers to a successful multiracial ad campaign with provocative imagery. She laughs and says she's not a doctor. She's a utilization review specialist. Utila what? Utila who? A utilization review specialist is the quality assurance expert of the medical world. She says she's there to get him home as quickly as possible, evidently on his behalf, but really much more to do with being an insurance watchdog. And his look after her preamble says it all. Her assessment? He's ambulatory, meaning not bedridden. The Foley's out. That's the tube that drains the bladder named after the guy that invented it, Frederick Foley. He's ready to go, to which he wonders why they want to kick him out when he's still in pain. Her suggestion? Eat better. Says he's lucky he had insurance in the first place. Mentions the wallet biopsy, where his insurance card was found. Lest he end up at county hospital. Made me wonder, how do ambulances know where to take a patient who's had an emergency? What's the default? What's the protocol? Well, part of the answer lies in determining a patient's ability to pay. The expression, wallet biopsy, made Tony throw up in his mouth. It's quite an affecting term, and it's cited in medical dictionaries, putting it a notch above colloquial or slang. It's used quite often. It's common, but no less disturbing. Also got me wondering about the modern-day analog for it, since many people don't really carry wallets around. Lots of transactions are digital now, and people in general move around lightly. Is there such a thing as an iPhone or smartphone biopsy? Is having an iPhone as opposed to another kind of phone enough of a biopsy to triage you? Wild stuff. This scene also demonstrates how we can perceive a person at first glance, but quickly turn on them once they open their mouth. How Tony went from, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Like Mr. Rogers? To, get the fuck out. Next, we cut to Carm helping Tony walk down a hallway. Hey, there he is, wearing a robe again. Not going down to the end of the driveway to pick up the paper, but hey, baby steps. Crawl, walk, run, or whatever the fuck. Karma's told Dr. Tashlin's on the phone waiting for her. 
she seats Tony down right next to Deluxe's room to take the call. Tony overhears him saying, there's an upside to everything. To which I always think, Donnie Hathaway over here. Deluxe is a great palate cleanse, to quote my friend Naya. He's talking to who appears to be his manager, based off the way they're communicating with each other. My only qualification to make that assessment is that I interviewed Kurt Cobain's manager once. But hey, his album is trending up. The shooting couldn't have come at a better time. Lux laments that it hurts when another member of his entourage suggests he's on a path to legendary status. Not even Tupac got seven caps. It's true, the autopsy showed that Tupac was shot four times. But 50, that's 50 Cent, got two more, making it nine. 50's story was crazy. He was shot outside his grandmother's house at close range nine times. Hand, arm, hip, legs, chest, and left cheek. And that's not left cheek ass. That's left cheek face. Like Tony, as we'll see later this episode, upon surviving that, 50 believed his life had a purpose and he had to do something with it. Something good. Lux's manager doubles down that his street cred bona fides are going to go way up. Him holding down a real job for a period of years, notwithstanding. Tony's listening, but beside himself. Want to talk about street cred? He's wondering. But also, you think he's partially embarrassed by what's happened to him? How it all went down? Regardless, when Luck starts crying, Tony's face, the simultaneous menace and acerbic, poor fucking you. From Crybabies, we cut to Choo Choo Train Bobby drinking from a water fountain. Just too fucking spot on, that detail. He overhears a rapper sounding out bars to some new heat he's working on. Bobby asks if he's a rapper his son would know. Now, tall order, I'm sure, but I vow never to be that guy. Ever since Jason Bentley left the airways, my music inflow has suffered immensely. But I'm determined to make the most of those annual best-of lists across the spectrum to stay current. You gotta, man. Like Jack said in The Departed, act accordingly. Guy says Deluxe is going to produce his album, or was supposed to produce his album, or he thought he might one day, per chance, produce his album. The things we tell ourselves. But now that he's been shot, he's gangster number one. And as a result, has lost focus on this guy's shit. Who, by the sound of it, feels a little rough. Has a ways to go. But what am I, A&R for Capitol Records now? Ahmet Erdogan over here? This scene, to my mind, exists to contrast Bobby with everyone else in Tony's crew. He really has been hiding behind that brother-in-law shit. What's he gonna do about it? Turns out, he has a plan, as we'll see in a bit. Cut from choo-choo trains to buses. Polly pulls up. Nucci comes off the bus. She's back at Green Grove. Says she won $40 at Kino, popular gambling game that originated in China and was largely credited with raising the financing for the Great Wall of China. Polly confronts her, 
And she denies it at first, stone cold, like she's been prepping for this day. I mean, how could you not? At least think about it. But she finally relents. Oh, how I dreaded this day. I gave you everything. I gave you a son's love. All under false pretense. No. Another great Sopranos twist, right? Yeah? So fucking what? Calls her a fraud and a phony. And his real mother? She's even worse. She's a whore. My mother's a fucking whore. Channeling a little Ralphie there with his pronunciation. He continues. You cooked up this scheme. Forget who gets victimized. Nucci says she loved him. Always loved him. But why the past tense, Ma? He said his piece and storms off. Again, just another great moment for Pauly. Connects us to him more than ever before. One of the many memorable and painful and funny and real moments. Cut to Bobby finagling a cigar as if it's the first time he ever smoked one. He's outside the hospital waiting on the aspiring rapper. When he sees him, he tells him his profile could use a gunshot wound. That's his scheme. To raise some cash to kick up to tea. Though we don't quite see it yet. At least I didn't. Bobby explains maybe then X-Lax would take him more seriously too. Great malaprop of the rapper's name to reference the brand name of the compound, Senaglycoside, a laxative. No doubt something he'd know all about, waiting in line for junior stool softener and all. The detail to apply that malaprop to Bobby as opposed to someone else, spot on. Bobby continues with his grand vision. Something easy, the fleshy part of the thigh. There's your title. And he suggests he be the one to do it, on account that he's a marksman. Note how Bobby also combines malaprops. In saying Dr. Droop, he's seemingly combining Dr. Dre and Snoop D-O-double-G. This rapper isn't feeling it, though. Like, what the fuck, right? Imagine being approached with that proposition. Not quite the level of Robert Redford's indecent proposal, but certainly one that merits a fraction of the pondering that took place in that film. Cut to the hospital waiting area, early morning. Everybody's asleep except Vito. He's reading Men's Health. Then as Pauly exits the elevator, Father Intentola comes up from behind, asks how Tony's doing. And Pauly takes out his frustrations with the Catholic Church in the form of its nuns on him. Pauly's draining threes and running away with this one. Not unlike the way some of these later round playoff games have been going lately. Games are over by halftime. This episode is all Pauly's and we're barely halfway through. Tony's in his room watching Kung Fu with David Carradine. That's the martial arts western about a Shaolin monk traveling through the Old West. What a fucking premise. Simple, expansive, ethereal. Bruce Lee, by some accounts, was credited with the concept, though some on the opposite side of that ledger dispute it by a country mile. We hear in the background, between father and son, there is a bridge. 
relevant and appropriate, no doubt, to Tony and AJ, especially as this season progresses. Tony's grasshopper, to quote the Kung Fu series. Paulie comes in, says he's got Phil Leotardo waiting downstairs. Now we hear grasshopper on screen. Context-wise, this is interesting. Between Tony and Phil, who's the grasshopper? Then we hear a gunshot on the TV. Symbolism. Only one of these two guys can be left standing. T asks Polly to help him up. Note how Polly pushes away the IV cart with his fingers. His general repulsion to germs and other people's body parts is on full display. Finally gets him up and out, but moves too fast. Tony has to yank him back, not realizing the guy's in a hurry to catch up to his past. Tony walks by one of his neighbors. They exchange pleasantries and apologies, snoring and sonic boom farts. Neighbor's name is John Schwinn, played by the wonderful actor Hal Holbrook, now 95 years old. He won five Emmys, and among his more famous roles played Deep Throat and All the President's Men, which is connected to this episode in that Watergate will be referenced in a bit. I also loved him in The Firm, which I just recently watched again. Tony wonders if he's connected to the bike Schwins, but no relation. That Schwinn was Ignaz Schwinn. That company went bankrupt in the 90s and has ever since been a brand within a larger parent company. They, Schwinn Bikes, that is, were the beneficiaries of anti-competitive practices. And as the economy became more globalized, international competition came in and ate their lunch. They didn't innovate. And that, as Nas once said, is what surviving the times is all about. Also, since we're mashing up rap and Schwinn here, one of my favorite uses of the bike in a song is Warren G's timeless, This DJ. Schwinn, the brand, has since branched out into fitness equipment. This Schwinn, the soprano Schwinn, says he was a foot soldier at Bell Labs. That's the famous research company that started in Murray Hill, New Jersey in the 1920s. It has since been renamed Nokia Bell Labs. The original name was, of course, attributed to Alexander Graham Bell, who, as we know via Tony, robbed Antonio Meucci of his credit for the invention of the telephone. Tony asks him what he's in for. Cute. John says a sinus infection. Lower right maxillary sinus. Those are the cheekbones. They were going to enlarge the opening, but in doing so found some stuff they didn't like. Sinuses, by the way, are a connected system of hollow cavities in the skull. Modern science hasn't really been able to pinpoint the evolutionary reason for sinuses. Some say they humidify the air we breathe. Others say they give our different voices their signature sounds. I bring it up because maybe Pastor Bob has some thoughts. Lux gets pushed by on a bed, says what's up to Tony. Tony thanks him for the CD he gave for AJ. The stuff that happens off camera. Is it just me, or does the guy standing next to Lux look like Deion Sanders? Didn't exactly move like primetime, 
but something in the profile jumped out for a second. Lux pounds his chest and calls Tony an original G. Tony's classic, yeah, whatever, as if to downplay in front of his new erudite friend, which is something I'll come back to later. Lux invites him over to his room. He's getting a fight on satellite. All of a sudden, this hospital is lit. The place to be. Great wind carrying us from recovery to fight night. Cut from talking about a fight to an actual fight, albeit with words. Outside the hospital, Phil and Tony get into it. Note that Phil's guy is into the conversation. Not as intimidating as his brother Billy, but seems to be more of a consigliere than an enforcer. His name's Albie. Contrast that with Paulie, who's checked out and looking away. We know what's on his mind, obviously, but Tony doesn't. Yet. Tony thinks Phil's trying to poach his company. Of course, that's Barone. And as we just learned, that shit is an unwritten law and frowned upon. Phil says it was because of the coma. Tony's response, that gives you carte blanche? This as he puts his cigar out. As the camera lingers on that, I wondered why. Is he about to stomp out Phil? Phil says it's because of John. He's in the can. Fed's taking everything he's got. Tony understands, but explains the importance of Barone to him. The W-2. Phil's face when he hears this. Like, I give two fucking fucks about your couple three W-2s, you offshore Cayman cocksucker. Tony pleads he's going to be holed up here, and Barone is his secondary insurance carrier. He needs it. To which most people probably think, how nice to have multiple insurance options. So what's Tony's ask? 25% of the sale price, year's salary till retirement, plus skim. Knowing it's too much, and in the spirit of not wanting to argue, he says he'll give Johnny a break on the skim. He's getting two G's a week now. Tony wonders how many stops that's based on, looks to Polly, who's on a Zephyr cloud of his own. So, doing no math whatsoever, arbitrarily says he'll cut the skim to $1,500 a week. But note, already figuring out how and from where he's going to recoup that. Phil says with a big smile, all I can do is deliver the message, Anthony. I was always impressed that Tony took that patronizing on the chin. Back in the elevator, Tony and Pauly, great shot choice, looking at them from behind. Reminds me of him and Junior in an elevator, but from a different vantage point, head on. Also, lots of solemn Pauly in an elevator lately. This episode right here, right now, and last episode after he delivers the package to Carmela. Finally, elevators in general. Lots of emotions and intrigue take place inside them. Recall the walk and talk style scene in I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, Chris and the D Girl, Artie coming out of an elevator to confront Jean Philippe and everybody hurts, and of course, all the various instances, uses, and presentations of it in these Tony in the Hospital episodes, including, of course, the broken one in the Bardo. 
You got your head up your ass today, Tony says. Paulie tells him his aunt just died. And Tony tries empathy. Pretty decent, all things considered, by the way. But we know what his look is. Get over it. We learn Paulie's got a brother and sister, that they're coming in. But Paulie's short. And this sequence is perfect. Here we are. This your brother and sister coming in? Yeah. You're in. The pacing. She's a nun. Yeah. The choice to have the camera follow them first. The body language. The choice to have Paulie respond with simple yes. Always wondered. They got hair on the day. Tony's yeah. wanton sure. provocation. Veiled as empathy. Maybe you don't want to talk about it. He scrapes at the ribs of Paul. Always has. Both of them have some version of a grudge against the other. And the way the show allows it to manifest is worthy of an overworked one-word descriptor. Alchemy. The whole thing is a perfect microcosm of a road trip between two people who can barely tolerate each other. Those wedding rings they wear, are they really married to Jesus? So I understand. Cut to Tony's room. Chris is inside with a great Fila tracksuit number. Red, green, black, and white. He's holding the rogue paramedic who performed the wallet biopsy on Tony. Tony must have put word on the street to corral this guy after talking to that insurance Rottweiler. Paulie and Tony arrive from their shorthand road trip. The implication here is that the paramedic took money out of Tony's wallet. He says he was just doing his job, looking for insurance. But the fuck that didn't help his cause any. Not that it really mattered. These guys found low-hanging fruit they could bust out. And Tony, who just got squeezed by Johnny Sack vis-a-vis Phil, has got to recoup. And this is one way. Tony likens the paramedics doing his job excuse to what the Nazis said at Nuremberg. Referencing, of course, the military tribunals that took place after World War II, where Nazi leadership was prosecuted for their war crimes and crimes against humanity. Tony pauses. He's calculating in his mind how much he can reasonably squeeze out of this guy. And figures upon 2K says that's how much was missing from his wallet. To me, that's old school, carrying that kind of cash. In a wallet, no less. I know T would never use Apple Pay or get his weekly Barone sanitation skim through Venmo, but that number seems high for a wallet, is all. Yet, he figures, certainly not high enough for poor Rudy Diaz. Christopher, real tough, says he has one week. But Chris isn't really great at being muscle, a heavy. Not now. Not after we know him as well as we do. He's not a starting pitcher or even a setup guy. He's a closer. He protects a lead or cleans up a mess. This is out of character for him. Remember the jackets when Tony and him were talking in the dark a few seasons ago? Tony was wearing his jacket, whereas Chris's jacket was wearing him? That's what I'm reminded of here. He's been working himself into this role 
but it's always felt unnatural. And that's actually a testament to the acting. Chris is in his own form of a bardo, if you will, an in-between state. Not necessarily top dog material, but also not really interested in that so much either. He's always been chasing something else. And we're watching him work out the kinks in this new post-Adriana life. Enter Carmella. Everybody smiles. The tension evaporates. AJ's there too. Classic Carmella. Concerned Tony's not getting any rest. At which point, everybody skedaddles. Tony notices Carmella and AJ came together. They made up. She apologized to him. That's actually a big deal for a parent to do that. Especially that generation. How many of us are waiting for apologies that are probably never going to come? And then, Carmela reveals something no parent in their heart of hearts truly wants to announce to the world. My son got a job at Blockbuster. And this begins a Pada Bing business case study on the rise and precipitous fall of Blockbuster. Fucking Blockbuster. Part of this podcast has been just so I can romanticize the importance and value that Blockbuster brought to my suburban, busted home life. My respite from the realities of the regularness of life of Northern California. Being the only non-white in virtually all white schools. Other than get semi-good at sports, basketball, hockey, and snowboarding, the rest of my time was spent ripping through Blockbuster's shelves one weekend at a time. I was too clumsy and awkward to get into drugs or even dabble with relationships. I had one major one, but even then, looking back, I remember the stacks of videos I'd power through and the feelings I had while watching them and immediately after. And the haagen my mom would stock the freezer with. All this trumped any AOL IM chat sessions with my girlfriend. I wanted to talk about the movies and the music in them. And many people around me, there in Sacramento, just didn't give a shit about that stuff. I even recall getting detention, or jug as it was called, for quoting the devil's advocate in theology class. I wish I could remember the point I was trying to make. I was so proud of it at the time. One of the reasons I love art history so much and studied it intensely for many years was because of my AP art history teacher who'd make references to things like movies all the time. Connect the dots in a way I largely think I've subconsciously adopted throughout my life. Pattern matching. So, That Blockbuster membership card was more valuable than a driver's license. Until, of course, I got a driver's license, and then it became the second most important thing because I'd use the driver's license to pick up more copies of flicks from Blockbuster as soon as I was done. And, importantly, to avoid those fucking late fees. I wouldn't have to wait on my ma. I could just go. So what happened? Yeah. Netflix. From 9,094 stores, one remains in Bend, Oregon. 
Among Blockbuster's early innovations, video game rentals, and improving upon the franchise efficiencies of Ray Kroc and the McDonald's model. The challenge, which was identified early, was that the business really didn't have a moat to fend off competitors. First cable TV, and then, of course, streaming. The first milestone on its path to obsolescence was a sale to Viacom in 1994. Shortly after the sale, the value of the business was virtually halved. Then, when DVDs became mainstream, Blockbuster was offered a 60-40 studio deal, in the studio's favor, of course, in which they would get a window to rent DVDs before they went on sale to the general public. Blockbuster turned down the offer, apparently pissing off the studio, who then proceeded to drop the wholesale price of its DVD library, resulting in Walmart becoming the studio's biggest revenue source and putting a huge dent in Blockbuster's business. Then, many other retailers followed and actually used DVDs as loss leaders, selling them at a massive discount to lure buyers to the store to pick up other stuff, stuff with better margins. Blockbuster started selling DVDs too, but couldn't compete on price. And so began an accelerated race to the bottom. The next major milestone in its path to obsolescence, and probably its biggest mistake, given the opportunity, of course that we now recognize with the benefit of hindsight, was turning down the chance to buy, yes, buy Netflix for $50 million in 2000. Netflix's current market cap is $227 billion. Instead, they created their own version of Netflix called Blockbuster Online. But it was no match for those by then ubiquitous red envelopes in the mail. They invested a billion dollars to compete with Netflix. For context, that's barely a fraction of what Netflix spends on content alone. Meanwhile, the CEO of Blockbuster raked in over $50 million per year sufficiently pissing off activist investor legend Carl Icahn, who accumulated board seats to attempt to affect change or a sale to private equity. They never innovated. They piggybacked on what other people were doing and never quite got it right. Because their business was a retail experience, and the business was inherently local in many ways. Stocks were optimized for the demo the stores were in. The business was eventually sold to Dish, who vowed to make a Netflix competitor of their own. When that didn't work, and with no one motivated like Carl Icahn to pivot the business, the obsolescence was complete. Anyway, all this is to say, hard to tell whether AJ's hiring accelerated the decline of the chain, but at the time of his hiring, the company was already in bad shape. Can't help but wonder that had Tony been home reading the paper, he might have seen something and said something, steered AJ in a different, more secure direction. Regardless, Tony's glad to see they made up. This as we cut to a prize fight on TV. Deluxe's room. Tony, Schwinn, Polly. Lux says he's got 50 G's on the fight. Tony wonders who he's placing his action with. 
he'll happily service it. Tony's shocked to learn Lux bets with Pinnacle. Online. Fucking internet. One of Pinnacle's innovations was reduced margin pricing. Fancy for less upfront VIG. As a result, Pinnacle is thought to handle transactions totaling in the billions of dollars worldwide. Again, fucking internet. Tony starts crunching numbers in his head. What price they give you on Alvarez? Guessing he meant Canelo Alvarez, who at that point was early in his career. By price, I think he meant money line. Lux says 350. The satellite is crapping out, and we see that the aspiring rapper, the one who Lux was going to produce, is tasked with holding it out the window so everyone else can watch. He reminds me of people pre coronavirus versus post. Hopes and dreams hanging out the window. Tony says he can get him 375, or Polymore rather. But again, Polly's checked out. Schwinn shares his views on the life boxers choose, but Polly's of the mind that their pain pales in comparison to the punches life throws at you. You think you got family, he says. In the end, they fuck you too. Polly's point, quite similar to Livia's actually, all of it is a life of abuse. Brings up Junior. You do your uncle a kindness, you get shot for your efforts. Also reminds me of Hugh. No good deed goes unpunished. But what is this, Wicked on Broadway now? Then more boxing references. We're alone in the ring, fighting for our lives. Shades of Livia. John says that's one way to look at it. He has another, but it's complicated. Polly thinks that means he thinks he's stupid. But I don't think it was that. Yet, note how John quickly looks over at Tony before de-escalating Polly. Interesting power move. This is your guy? John's thesis? It's actually an illusion. Those two boxers are separate entities. It's simply the way we choose to perceive them. It's physics, he explains. Schrodinger's equation. Who? What? Huh? Versions of what everybody else in the room is thinking or saying. We're all part of the same quantum field, he continues. I remember referring to that as the matrix the first time I heard it. So, without breaking down the equation itself, the basis of the equation is to predict the future. And it gets its name from Erwin Schrodinger, a Nobel Prize winning physicist who also has a crater on the moon named after him. Try putting that in a Dean Martin song. A woman in the room hilariously asks if he ever substituted at Carver Middle School. I believe that's a school in Newark, of course named after George Washington Carver, the most prominent black scientist of the 20th century. Learned there's a Hall of Fame for great Americans, and he's on it. After the fight craps out again, John proceeds. Think of the boxers as two ocean waves or currents of air. Uh Uh-oh, guy's about to get a jibway on us. Two tornadoes. Note now how Deluxe is even locked and loaded. He's either contemplating new material from John's flow, genuinely interested, or high off painkillers. All versions of the same thing since they're in the same quantum field, as we've just learned. John's wisdom, at a minimum, is icing some of the sting of losing 50K. 
We're all just wind stirred up in different directions, he says. The word wind makes Tony furrow his brow. But it's a great thought. And hearing it again now made me think of the Foo Fighters song, Statues. The fact is, he continues, nothing is separate. Everything is connected. Connected by the spider web, if you will, encircling the planet. Wind. Lux takeaway, and as good a takeaway as any that may be proffered up. Everything is everything. I'm down with that. Get the fuck out of here. Lauren Hill over here. Speaking of, anyone else think it's crazy she only released one album? The Miseducation of Lauren Hill back in 1998? The track on there, Everything is Everything, included a performance from then 19-year-old John Legend. But more directly, Everything is Everything is also the name of an album by Brand Nubian, of which the actor, Lord Jamar, who played Deluxe, was a part of. Anyway, Tony's takeaway? Get the fuck out of here. But not before acknowledging Autopsy's wonderful connection between Livia and John Schwinn. Both in hospital rooms at one point. One, Livia, saying it's all a big nothing, whereas the other, John, saying everything is everything. Even then, she was in the room with Tony and Polly. Beautiful connection. A full court Hail Mary pass from Kevin Love to LeBron James, circa 2016. As the TV craps out one more time, blaring, searching for satellite signal, John says the universe is just one bundle of molecules bumping up against one another. The shapes we see exist only in our own consciousness. To echo this thought, of course, in true Sopranos defiance, always making fun of itself, we see Kishan, Deluxe's son, fighting to get his gaming device back from his mom. And the final imprimatur of the show on all that college seminar wisdom, Pauly, again, serving as the Livia proxy for this scene, weighs in. You're so fucking smart. Fix that TV. <laughs> Note he's sipping wine out of a plastic cup based on the evidence right next to his chair on the wide shot. Whatever all this was, the long shot on Tony, he's thinking. He's different. Like he said after the surgery, this struck a nerve. The beginning of what we can suspect will be a long display of Tony reflecting as the series winds down. Cut to Phil debriefing Johnny with respect to the W-2. Johnny calls Tony a selfish prick. Then he requotes himself with respect to the sail he echoes. That ship has sailed. Albeit from a position of considerably less power than the last time he said it. Then he gives his terms. He's a consultant for two years, plus W-2, plus insurance, plus 5% of the sale, plus a new car lease? Phil's listening, but doesn't look like he's feeling it so much especially with Johnny Sack piling it on and probably realizing that two years is going to be the principal hot-button item. Made me wonder, would Phil dare counter with his own revised terms? 
Of course. As we'll see in a bit. But first, smash cut to Tony receiving the counteroffer from his guys. Tony, in a wasted away voice, kind of like mine is trending right now, says he needs that W-2 in perpetuity. Love that word. And Tony said it before to Carmela in For All Debts Public and Private when explaining that she'd be taken care of if anything happened to him. Tony says Paulie better tell Jason about his obligation right before projectile vomiting across his bed and into Christopher's incredible lighting mark. To which I say, if you're going to get hurled on, you might as well look damn good. Cut to Jason on the waterfront. Not the Hoboken waterfront like the film of the same name, but the Passaic River waterfront. Right at Belleville Turnpike and Passaic Avenue. The bridge in the background is the Belleville Turnpike Bridge. Jason Sculling, that's rowing solo. And special thanks to listener Molly for alerting me to the skill of Jason's technique. He's good. His technique, everything, it's on point. The actor was either an experienced rower or went straight method for this role. The song, one of the few times a song fills the soundscape of a frame mid-episode, is The Three Bells by the Browns, a song that was first recorded in French by Edith Piaf. The version in this episode charted number one on Billboard when it came out. Also, bells are everywhere this episode. Interestingly, though, bells are thought to signify something auspicious, to dispel evil. I mention that because at the end of this episode, we hear bells again. But there's nothing auspicious about that moment. It's much more a harbinger of evil, if anything. You're going to get cute with semantics now. Jason's sporting a Passaic River Rowing Association hat. A real thing, and still going strong. As the lyric turns to baby Jimmy Brown, who, like Jason, needs to be guided with eternal love after this episode for sure, we see Polly and Patsy walking down a ramp toward Jason. Polly tells them that no matter the disposition of the sale, they gotta be taken care of. The way the camera rotates as Polly gets closer, and throws those pointer and pinky fingers in Jason's face? Perfection. The message? Whatever Johnny Sack doesn't perform on, it's coming out of Jason's end. Or ass, as Polly aptly put it. Polly threatens his knees, speaks directly to impacting his profession as a ski instructor. Says he's got a lot on his mind these days. Gotta let everybody, big and small, consequential or not, No, right? Cut to Jason on a golf course trying to back out of the deal. The Titleist hat guy is Cinelli. Says Tony's Jason's problem. Then his ma shots out from the clubhouse. She's headed for the buffet table. Probably has extra high spirits expecting a big windfall soon. Doesn't feel or look much like a widower. But hey, we all grieve in different ways. Cinelli calls Jason Laddie Buck a pejorative term for ski instructors from Deer Valley, and tells him tough shit. The Barone routes are now Chinelli ones. This, as he sticks the handle of a putter into Jason's chest. A lot of symbolism there, too. Jason's now getting it on both sides. This innocent creature from Deer Valley is damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. The frame changes to reveal that they are at a New Jersey Karting Association Couples Golf Classic. 
Why are those things called fucking classics? What about them makes it such? Turns out it has nothing more to do than simply being a long-standing tradition. Why is anything named anything? But poor Jason. His dad dies. He tries to sell the business. But there are all these unforeseen tentacles and interests at play. Cut to Tony standing and watching something intently on the other side of glass doors. Great choice to approach him from behind slowly. Recall he was pissed the last time we saw him. Have things simmered down? He's helpless to a degree and relying on other people to do some of his bidding. People he wouldn't necessarily otherwise have doing his bidding. That could certainly be a part of it. He's looking at a little girl with third-degree burns on 80% of her body. There are three levels of burns. First-degree burns, of course, affect only the outer layer of skin. Second-degree burns go a layer deeper and are characterized by blistering and swelling. Third-degree burns go deeper, in some instances to the bone, and are particularly more consequential on children because their skin tends to be thinner. Worth mentioning all this because of the contrast between his concern for her versus his concern for Valentina. Anyway, when he tells Polly about her, his response is a dead giveaway for where he's at right now. You wouldn't believe the week I've had. To his credit, though, there's no fucking preamble with Polly on this. He's not bullshitting or putting up much of a facade here. Yet Tony flips. At this point, we're thinking, why doesn't Polly just tell him? It's a pretty big deal. Certain to be the butt of some jokes among the guys, but certainly something worthy of the skip. But part of me also likes the choice not to tell. If you're Polly, you're thinking one of two things. Fuck him? Or why give him another reason to demote or marginalize me? But as we now know, he tells him. Your aunt, the nun, was your mother. Then another great choice. The wide shot on them both as Polly continues. Not only is my ma not my ma, who the fuck even knows who this rust bastard is? Worst thing, I'm not who I am. It's like my whole life is a joke. Not only is my ma not my ma, who the fuck even knows who this rust bastard is? Laughs for days over the years. By the way, still can't decide who says Russ better, Dottie or Polly. Cut to engines revving like Polly's head and heart. We're on a Barone route. Another great angle. Almost like the camera is affixed to the driver's side of the truck. Love that we see is from the point of view of the guy hanging off the side of the truck on his grind. Inside the truck, a son got to go on a ride-along with his dad. Little detail, but great that it is contrasted with Polly, who only just learned who his mother was and never got to do anything like that with his father. Kids in heaven. Wants to do this all the time. But he's on holiday. Especially brutal setup, given what goes down. As the truck approaches the destination, it's blocked by a Chinelli truck. Again, blocked at an angle. The guy gets out to confront the truck, says he's had this route for five years. But they're not interested in talking. Not their M.O. They beat the shit out of him right in front of his kid. And almost run over his hand. We watch from an overhead shot as the boy screams for his dad. A scream he'll no doubt hear in his head for the rest of his life. And we cut to Tony sleeping, 
the Ojibwe saying is now prominently displayed, shit keeps moving around. We get several beats of this over Tony's snoring. All his worrying about Johnny, Phil, his W-2s, that Ojibwe saying is a nice reset and reminder. We get it, but does he? Cut to a photo of Polly, second time we got that this episode, and another of Nucci and Polly's sister, maybe. The TV's on. We hear the word wallow in the background. It's Nucci's room. She's putting a prayer card on the mirror, even though she might need a couple of Honus Wagners to sell after Polly settles things with her. There's banging on the door. Polly enters without knocking. Love the staging. We've seen this before. Him in the quarters of a room at Green Grove with menace in his eyes. Because of that very precedent, I think he's going to kill her right there. The way he walks in. Nucci's disappointed he didn't go to the funeral. His mother's funeral. His response? Even a rat don't abandon their children. Nucci says to feel sorry for her. She's going to have to face St. Peter to which I thought Tony might have some advice on that, if he remembers. And would her line be any different from his mil-spec one? Paulie's over Dottie, but has business with Nucci. He's done being her meal ticket. Goose with the golden eggs. Aesop's fables over here. He says, let his brother or Rose take care of her now. Note, he's especially angry about his brother. Can't even say his name. Then, powerful stuff. I went without so you could have. Mink coat. Massage chair from Sharper's Image. Nice touch with the plural pronunciation. And the flat screen TV. 2,000 bucks for a woman I don't even know. To which I thought, wow. 2000 bucks for that TV? That buys you five of those now. Or if you're a Costco member, more. But more importantly, do you really think he actually bought that? He grabs the TV like the Incredible Hulk grabs a piece of a high-rise building and throws it out the window. The quick cut to reveal that nobody noticed or cared down below is telling. Same, one could say, applies to Polly. Polly says they're finished and walks out. He spared her life, which isn't surprising, but it's worth mentioning because you never know. And, well, the entire premise of the show, in the first place, was based on a mother sanctioning a hit on her only son. Cut to Tony and Jason trying to hash things out. Great close-up shot of Tony sitting down, light filtering through the blinds behind him. This as he tries to explain to Jason that it's a different corporate culture. They pin the beating on Jason, to which he says it's his family's business. This isn't fair. That word, fair. I've never looked at the word the same way after this moment, from the first time I heard it here. Tony, in probably his best one line of the series, contextually, holistically, just perfectly embodying the series, who he is, and as we've just been through this journey with him in junior, fair? 
followed by about as many question marks as you can fit on a page. Tony says, talk to the Katrina victims about FAIR. Super manipulative and self-serving, but effective. Katrina, of course, was the 2005 hurricane that devastated New Orleans, currently tied with 2017's Hurricane Harvey for the costliest storm to hit U.S. soil. Ask Paulie about fairness, he continues. Says, you're worse than my son. Get the fuck out. He's throwing everybody out of his room this episode. He's slowly regaining his full form. Although, he's toggling back and forth with this new, every day is a gift, Tony. But we just got a line in the sand. Touches money, and every day is your ass. Jason apologizes, says he was kept in the dark. Polly throws him out like he threw the TV, perfecting that motion this episode. Cut to Bobby and aspiring rapper guy. Guy enters the car, hands him a bag of cash. Bobby looks at it for a couple, three seconds and sees that it's 7,000, not eight. Counting money that fast is an impressive skill, by the way. Yes, this fucking guy is paying Bobby to shoot him in the fleshy part of the thigh. Bobby conned this guy to give him money to shoot him. And a lot of money. The impressiveness of this con cannot be overstated. You gotta go outside the family for something like this, he explains. You don't want people knowing. Bobby's pulling out the psychological warfare. Jedi mind tricks. The rapper doesn't want to know when it happens. Asks for the element of surprise. Makes sense. But surprised Bobby didn't say, that's extra. The same way folks at Chipotle remind us every time that guacamole is extra. Even though we fucking get it, we know. The guac is extra. Cut to Tony and Chris reading. Tony about dinosaurs. Chris Razor Magazine, a now defunct Thinking Man's magazine. Tony tells him that humans' time on this earth is equivalent to a postage stamp on the top of the Empire State Building. His point, you realize how insignificant that makes us. Chris says he doesn't feel that way. Signaled something for me that listener Fred from Washington also hit me up about. Chris and Tony are on different wavelengths. This sequence is profound and hilarious. And that's perfectly okay. It can be both things at the same time. At a minimum, reiterating the recurring theme of duality this episode. Hesh comes in to visit. Calls Tony robust. Beth came too, his daughter. And wife of Eli, who, remember, got touched up by Jerry Torciano's crew. Then Pastor Bob comes in. Regally lit, as usual. Tony invites him in, introduces him around, and he hands Tony a book, Born Again by Charles Colson, the Watergate guy. Tony says a friend did time with him. Bob describes Colson as a ruthless, powerful man who thought he was above the law. Oh, shots fired. This, of course, directly to Tony. He starts talking about salvation, that it's not just about after you die but it's also about being saved by yourself while you're still alive. 
That, to me, is probably Pastor Bob's best offering. And Tony's look suggests the same. Colson was a political advisor, polite term for the more robust term, hatchet man, to Richard Nixon. He encourages Tony to join them at the Church of the Open Door of the Redeemer. The Church of the Open Door of the Redeemer. Look, the longer the name of your church after the word church, the more suspect it is. This one's got way too many words. You get lost in the woods listening to that one. Halfway through, you feel like changing religions. Pastor Bob's out here handing out books. Someone should hand him a copy of the 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. But Tony's actually considering it. We get a long beat. Says it must be nice to have something to hold on to. Cut to Chris looking curiously at him. Also, the way these guys are lit in this hospital room is just incredible. Him in particular here. The darkness and the light. The two faces of these guys. Reading a thinking man's magazine to antagonizing Rudy Diaz. Chris is probably also wondering there's plenty of other things Tony might rather hold on to than a Fugazi church. But Tony says, maybe. Love the cut to Hesh right there. Who's thinking a lot of things, not the least of which was a born-again Christian church faction. And then cut back to Chris, who, just by body language alone, seems to be considering it himself now. But I can't help but wonder if he sees it as a place to find some right people to bust out. A target-rich environment. They start shooting the shit about dinosaurs, King Kong. Everybody laughs at Tony's joke, just like at the executive game. But then Bob gets serious. Serious for him, that is. Says dinosaurs never existed. The world was only created 6,000 years ago. A belief attributable to what's known as young earth creationism. And right there's where the guy's eyes fit the persona. Spot on. Says dinos and humans lived on the planet at the same time. Here I'm thinking, if only Polly was in the room. Tony says, like the Flintstones? Another reference to that show. Recall last time was a mention of the lead character, Barney Rubble, back in a regular Around the Margins when Tony and Adriana had their late night drive. Bob's adamant. It's in the Bible. In fact, the timing of this back and forth was emblematic for the era. George W. Bush, as president, was interested in schools teaching creationism alongside evolution. Tony pushes back. What about carbon dating and, you know, science? Offers up the guy next door, Schwinn, as an example. He'd beg to differ. But Bob, Mr. Answers for Everything over here, says those people have an agenda and they're not saved. This from a guy who's peddling his own agenda. Evolution, he says, is Satan's plan to deny God. Evolution and salvation are mutually exclusive. And there, like so many others cast in the mold of Sopranos, he reveals his hypocrisy. His God, too, it turns out, isn't a forgiver of all sins of even the worst criminals. 
His God is a binary one. You either do or you don't. Bob leaves. And Christopher, in true form, waiting to talk about people behind their backs, questions his bona fides. Dinosaurs with Adam and Eve? Great moment. They'd be scared shitless. Hilarious take, but true. He says that contradicts the messaging that it was paradise. You know, paradise in the Garden of Eden. But Beth is aligned. Now you're understanding why all these people are in the room together. It's fucking great. Beth is aligned with Pastor Bob. He's an evangelical, and they're great friends with the Jews, she explains. Love the quick cut to Chris's confused face. Because they too, she continues, agree that Israel is the Holy Land. But then Hesh, you wait. What's he mean there? Certainly, in part, that the natural fissure between both faiths were bound to bubble up under a particular set of circumstances and scenarios. But he said it as though he spoke from a position of authority or advanced knowledge. Hesh, the soothsayer. And deserving of any soothsayer, we get a long cut to Vito escorting Tony through hospital hallways. Certainly to convey the passage of time, but interesting choice. Thinking about it in the shower before sitting down to prepare this, I figured it was a nice exhalation from all that dense religious talk by a bunch of mostly bobblehead, non-authoritative, or dare I say, credible individuals. They walk past John's room, and Tony drops by for a fireside chat as Vito excuses himself. Tony brings up the tornadoes John was talking about, brings up that Ojibwe saying, John seems immediately tuned into its meaning. We don't see we're a part of a much bigger reality. And right there, this spoke to the prior two episodes, and Buddhism generally, being tuned into the universe around us, getting outside of ourselves and our own minutiae. Now, Tony doesn't remember any of this stuff, but I feel like he's releasing solar flares off his being towards that mindset. Again, the operative word here is toggling. He's toggling back and forth with everyday minutiae, his cut of barone, busting out Rudy Diaz, Paulie flexing the victim card, and this toggling will hopefully become a little more clear as the episode winds down. John asks why Tony's so interested in all this, and Tony talks about the coma. We get to see how much he knows or remembers about it. And of course, he flat out says he doesn't remember anything. But it got me wondering if there are cases where people do and if science can document that. Turns out the experience of being in a coma differs from person to person. Some people feel they can remember events that happened around them while they were in a coma, while others don't. Some people have reported feeling enormous reassurance from the presence of a loved one when coming out of a coma. And that certainly fits with what we saw with Tony. But beyond that, it's all pretty opaque which I thought was even more interesting that The Sopranos gave it such a close examination and did so in a way that clearly stood the test of time. Tony says he feels pulled towards something, and importantly, he doesn't want to go back, suggesting it wasn't a good pull, suggesting to echo Chris's word from a scene ago, it wasn't paradise. Also, just getting cute now, but 
Tony talking about pushing and pulling to John Schwinn, a veritable rocket scientist, putting the degree of his knowledge of physics on display was kind of amusing. He mentions, who am I? Where am I going? John mentions the duality of good and evil, more undertones of Nietzsche, then calmly tells Tony he got his test results back. Laryngeal cancer. How incredible is it that cancer puts everything into laser focus? Realizing how heavy that statement was, he offers what I took to be genuine levity. Could you do me a favor and whack me? But Tony's face upon hearing that, he was kind of crestfallen, but not dramatic about it. Just enough to convey that he felt they were on a level together. Not rocket science per se, but some baseline level of mutual respect. But Even John Schwinn, Tony realized, with all his words and wisdom, couldn't see past Tony's chosen profession. Cut to Pauly laboring over his thoughts, beating his fingers on the chair, not unlike what Tony might be doing upon later reflection of John's quip about whacking. Actually got me wondering about the origin of the term whack. Comes from Old English but it's taken on various definitions and meanings over the years. Parents, mobsters, and hip-hop culture ascribe different meanings to it. The notion that different words mean different things to different people is just an interesting phenomenon to me. Anyway, Tony comes in alone, says he couldn't wait for Vito. Guy takes really long dumps. Must be the Atkins shit. Tony says you could build a jetty with what comes out. Now, there is but one famous jetty, as beautifully described by Jeff Dyer in his collection, White Sands. Highly recommend. And if Tony was directly referencing that spiral jetty, I'll never be able to look at it the same way again. Also, not for nothing, but a great venue for witness protection. Might have even been offered up as a destination at one point or other. So, Tony's got a point of view on Nucci. She loved Pauly, fed him, bailed him out of the can. Gotta say, this Twilight Tony is a good look. Marlon Brando in one vibes. But Pauly just can't get over Dottie. And who can blame him, really? A boy without a mother is like a man without a country. He brings up Tony's mother, says he understands he didn't think he had a good mother. Again, with the direct comparisons to Tony. The contrast. Note Tony's instant face change and response. From supportive and Don-like to hostile and offended. Again, his bipolarity is a switch. A toggle. And to officially overuse the term this episode, the duality of Tony. Paulie's point? For all Livia's faults, she never abandoned him. He's hung up on being left behind. It's not trivial. For us parents of little ones out there right now, how many times have they gone bonkers when they thought we were gone or they didn't know where we were? Imagine extrapolating those fleeting moments over an entire lifetime. Then Tony does his signature move. His own version of a step back three. Or better, flex. 
He recites what he just learned, or a version of it, onto somebody else. Usually it comes from Melfi, but today it's from a 3x5 card affixed to his hospital recovery room. By the way, I feel like some Melfi sessions would have been warranted right about now. Got me wondering about hospital house calls of that nature. Like, couldn't she come to him? Anyway, Tony throws the Ojibwe saying at Polly. And Polly, quite diplomatically, I gotta say, says he never meant to trivialize Tony's situation. Tony keeps pushing. You're part of something bigger. When are you going to learn that? This took me back to Tennessee Moltisanti and Christopher's talk with Polly about his arc. Remember how ambivalent Polly was about having an arc? Or not having one? He was just content being half a wise guy. A part of something bigger? Man, at the end of the day, Polly's happy just sinking into his plastic wrapped chair, kicking his feet up, and half paying attention to a ball game. Hard cut to aspiring rapper walking out of a burger establishment. Fancy burgers. Real life location is a place called Crown Fried Chicken in Jersey City. We see him from the front, and then we get a great cut from behind to watch him approach his car, setting us up for what's to come. Bang! Right below the left cheek. Not like Fitty, left cheek as in face. This time it's left cheek as in ass. The burgers and fries and drinks go flying, almost as sad as watching Carmela's baked ziti get tossed in the trash. The drama of his food toss was like an NBA flop. Vintage Vlade or something. Then we see Bobby in a hoodie looking back to check, admire his work. Cut to Carmela staring out a window. She looks like she could be in a painting by Rembrandt or Diego Velasquez. Tony's thinking about Pearl's oyster bar, a lobster roll. Then Carmela brings up the package. She says she feels like there should have been more there. Says Vito is someone Tony should watch. Vito is someone Tony should watch. What a move! First time. She's meddled directly with business. She's not really meddling per se, but you know what I mean. Her look, her directness, her contemplation of it all. She's like a second consigliere right there. An open three whenever Tony needs it, if he gets tied up driving to the hole. And she sold it too. We never had any idea last episode when she was in line at the cafeteria that she was suspicious of him. And even when she watched the elevator close at the end of the episode, the only tell was that she was perturbed by their hypocrisy. Tony sighs, the ultimate acknowledgement, perhaps, of something that he already knows. Then the consultant bean counterperson comes back. Tony aptly refers to her as the bird of prey. Inappropriate in most contexts, but the fact that she dropped the veneer of professionalism when she mentioned the wallet biopsy, it's open season on her as far as a person like Tony's concerned. She says he's ready to go home. She minces no words. I mean, who would after being called what Tony called her by a complete stranger? Well, she has his dossier, so they're not completely strangers, but you know what I'm saying. Carmela questions the efficacy of her verdict. And Tony says, in a nicer way, it's all about the motherfucking cock-sucking money. 
trying to find a way to pull Melfi, will Melfi into this episode. As Bird of Prey walks out, Tony asks her to violate HIPAA by giving him the skinny on John Schwinn. And without skipping a beat, she does. They removed his larynx. Cut to Tony flipping channels. We overhear mention of attorney Jim Sokolov, one of the largest advertisers for legal services ever. His firm, amazingly, never really tried cases. They used the TV ads to generate leads that they then referred out. Their business was purely based off referrals. All those firms that you see billboards for that advertise on TV, they're essentially marketing companies for legal services. Then we hear Gitanos, Mexican word for gypsies. It's a Marlon Brando movie in the background, one of his westerns. I couldn't make out which one. Mrs. Barone comes in with stuffed zucchini, actually making that tonight with the kids in honor of this episode. She sits down with Tony to plead for Jason. She says it's all her fault. She and Dick purposely kept him in the dark. The key, she takes the fall for her son. He's my boy, Tony. He's my baby. The cut to Polly juxtaposed next to Brando. The lighting, the angle, the expression. His face is like Pompeii, while lava from Mount Vesuvius runs through it. She's beside herself, keeps going. She doesn't want assurances, but she literally asks for vengeance, if any, to be taken out on her, not him. That makes Polly cry. So serious and meaningful and fucking next level hilarious at the same time. With the music from the movie in the background providing real life score. Genius. As Polly leaves to weep outside the room, we cut to Bobby coming out of an elevator, determined as ever. Inside Tony's room, Chris is helping him get dressed. Looks like he's getting ready to leave. Carmela's packing up stuff. Bobby comes in with an envelope. Says it was an especially good week. Chris's look is great. I'm out here buttoning up shirts. And this fucking guy's out in the world earning? Envelope felt light. Optically. Just saying. Tony gets wheeled out. Silvio's there too. Vito. They roll past John's room, who's with his wife. Tony looks but doesn't want to go in. What's he thinking? Sorrow? Disappointment over the comment? Both things? Again, back to this notion that things can be two things or three things at once. Very few things are binary. As they push off, it's revealed that Jan and Meadow are also part of this discharge entourage. Then Rudy Diaz walks up with an envelope. Much thicker than Bobby's. That was my point. Smaller bills, maybe? Fine. But Tony says it's okay and moves along. Polite pass. Chris is beside himself. Money is money. Note, Chris gives Rudy a look like, I'll be coming back for that. Rudy Diaz has not seen the last of Chris Moltisanti. But this is what I was talking about earlier with Tony. The toggling. Somewhere, at some point, he realized that he was part of something greater than all of this. And all of a sudden, 
the paramedic bust-out seemed trivial. Outside, Tony takes it all in. Camera approaches his wheelchair from behind. Very Godfather-esque vibes once again. Music is blaring in the atmosphere, birds chirping, students chatting, cars buzzing by. Life, however imperfect, has meaning. And Tony breathes it all in. Here's church bells. Then his moment with Janice. I'm supposed to be dead. Now I'm alive. Says he's the luckiest guy in the world. After this, from now on, every day is a gift. Note the way he's holding her hand versus the way she yanks it away to get the car. She's less than thrilled with this whole outcome. Had it gone the other way, and there's precedent for this, Richie, had it gone the other way, she stood to gain. Perhaps she saw Bobby as a boss. Cut to Tony's feet, just like at the beginning of the episode. Love the symmetry there. He's reading the paper in bed. Carm comes in to let him know Phil is waiting for him downstairs. But before he comes up, he thanks her. Says this is all because of her. A necessary and proper moment between the two of them. Just long enough, too. Didn't oversell it. They're close, but not that close. And remember, this is not TV. This is The Sopranos. Phil comes in. Tony turns the music way up. The details. It's a song by Boston called Foreplay. Long time. Another appropriate track for this moment from their discography might be Don't Look Back. Recall also, we've heard Boston on the show before. More than a feeling during a panic attack in house arrest. Phil says the new terms are a paycheck in W-2 for 10 years, plus 12% of the sale price in lieu of skim. Tony scratches his head. No more skim? But ultimately, size says there's enough garbage for everybody. They have a deal. The toggle, at least for now, is complete. Downstairs, everybody's in the kitchen hovering around food. Instead of joining in, like he probably normally would, new Tony goes outside. It's windy as ever, perhaps as a way to conjure up all the past instances and meditations on wind and bring it all together with Tony and our final leg of the race with him. Note the pool water's got white caps. Great sound design coupled with visual landscape. Also a great way to introduce Pink Floyd. Tony sits down and breathes it all in again. And we get a great seamless cut transition to Jason, who's carrying down his rig for another day at sea, or the Passaic River. This otherwise idyllic moment is abruptly disrupted as he's met by Polly, who beats his legs with a lead pipe. He's got to kick four grand a month to him whether he's in Deer Valley or Death Valley. Love that. Four grand, by the way, is the exact amount for Green Grove. Ironic that Polly's going to make this mama's boy pay for his. What is she now? What's the term? False ma? To align her with the religious overtones this episode? Don't mention this to Tony either, he reminds him. 
Recall there's a history of things getting back to T in regards to Polly, and he doesn't like it. Then the detail of the vessel floating away. That's like a painter leaving his final signature mark on his masterpiece. Then, one last time, back on Tony, showing us how the wheel keeps on turning, no matter what fucking micro-revelation we have on any given day or week. Then the bells, equal parts uplifting and ominous, right? Paulie walking off the screen, walking us out of the Eastern mysticism tranche of the series, and right back into the mysticism of North fucking Jersey. The wind, one last time, reminding us we're not alone. We're all connected, if in no other way at all, through this show. Fade to black over a Pink Floyd track, that gravelly bass of One of These Days, the only lyric of which is, One of These Days... I'm going to cut you into little pieces. The bass on that track was double-tracked. That and clever panning is what created the potent reverb effect. We've heard Pink Floyd on the show, too, back in season four, Mergers and Acquisitions, the Dark Side of the Moon album's last track, Eclipse, considered one of the top 50 albums of all time, by the way, by Rolling Stone. We also hear Tony singing Parts of Another Brick in the Wall, part two. And... If I recall correctly, we're due for a couple more down the line. And that's it. Tony toggled his old life on the outside, pre-bullet from Junior, with his purpose on this planet now. And we toggled with one aspect of the show, the spiritual and metaphysical, and the other, this thing of ours. This episode was a beautiful bridge between both spaces. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.